Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm Dave Gebro. And I'm Joe Kennedy. And here we are. We are here and we are doing this. First things first, you need to know just how seriously we take all this. Discography is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. And we ain't just covering albums. Nope. Uh, no. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, solo work, bootlegs, uh, you name it, we do it. And all, re- all releases are slapped with an objectively accurate rating from zero to five stars. Which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Today on Discography, we'll be turning the spray cans on the Velvet Underground. Nobody gave a shit turned everybody gives the biggest shit ever. Okay, so before we start, we've got incredibly special guest in the cavernous studio of the Imaginarium. Lads and ladies of Discography City, Wired said of our guest's YouTube show, The Needle Drop, instead of deploying $10 words to describe a riff or synth tone, he relies on gestures. It gets at some of the more ephemeral qualities of music that written words can't begin to touch. No one less than the Dean of Rock Criticism, Robert Criscow, said in 2019 of our guest, he seems to have arrived at a plausible brand of 21st century rock crit taste. And he seems to have figured out a way to make some kind of living by disseminating his own criticism in the online age, and that's an achievement. This afternoon's guest is in love with Jello Biafra, so I'm sure he's thrilled that this episode can clearly be described as a penis landscape. Would you please put your hands together and then take them apart and put them back together, etc., etc., for fellow music obsessive and music critic Anthony Fantano. Hey, Anthony. Hey. <laughs> I, I, I love and I'm very flattered that you took the the one nice part of the Chris Cow quote about me. And you, and, you, and you made it sound like he had very, that he has a positive opinion of me. You, you took the one nice thing that he said and you, you quoted it. Thank you. I just need you to know on a subconscious level that I have your back. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. No problem at all. So, okay. Thanks very, very much for doing this. Uh, and also, uh, you know, we, we love your show, but also this is a major, major band for us. And so uh, I just want you to know, we immediately were like, yes, we'll do it with him. Whereas, you know, 99% of the general public would be like, no way. It's the Velvet Underground. We're saving it up for someone special. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. This is, you know what I'm not talking about. This is a big one. Um, no, so- it, it, it is a big one. I figured this is like, you know, this is like building block stuff. This is like, you know, we're, we're talking about like atoms and electrons here. What, what do they mean you to know? you? At a molecular level, what does this band mean to you? Uh, what age are we talking about first? I, I, th- I think the only age at which you can't truly get into the Velvet Underground when you're sort of like, you know, musically and artistically up your own ass in college. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's kind I, of I, what I, I discovered them. For sure. I, I think I think any sure I think you could probably listen to them beforehand and and for sure these days there are probably tons of kids who are in fact doing that. Um, but I, 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 feel I have like to be I, honest with you. In 1985, yeah. I bought the vinyl. I was 13 years old of Velvet, well, Velvet Underground and Nico. Yeah, but 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 here's the thing. Did you have did you have like the air that one has about themselves when they first cross over into adulthood? Yet yeah, you didn't. So it's like no, you know, no. I, I feel I feel like I feel like once you ha- once you're armed with that. The Velvet Underground hits so much harder. Oh, so much harder. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, as a 13-year-old listening to White Light, White Heat, you're just, like, 
quizzically scratching your chin going, what the hell is this? When right, I was that exactly. age, when I was like a teenager, I mean, I've talked about this in the show before, you know, like it was the mid eighties and I was like learning to play guitar and stuff. I wanted to just play in metal bands. I would have not, there was no way I was going to get it at that age. Right. Um, it wasn't really until a little bit later like, you know, like, I think it was I, I, probably the first Velvet Underground song I was even familiar with was probably like heroin because it was in the Doors movie. You know, like I, I wasn't like a 13 year old like Dave that was, you know, reading the Rolling Stone record guide and finding all those gem records. I was like, hey, what's this new Dokken record going to be all right. about? <laughs> I was not really right. I was not really there until much later. Listen, my first concert was Brian Adams with my dad. So I'm not quite as cool as I paint myself. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I had I. The first record I had of theirs was that I bought like a, uh, a comp. I, I think it, was, it came out in like the late 80s, early 90s. And that, that mm-hmm. was a great start because that had a little bit of everything from all the different periods. Um, and it, it was actually a really well done comp. Um, yeah, is it the, the VU comp, the archival one? Yeah, yeah. It was a sing, yeah. single CD. It came out in 89. Verve put it out in 89. Mm-hmm. The best yeah. of the Velvet no, Underground. Good one. So and, the cool, the, one of the coolest things about this band, as a fellow music nerd, uh, Anthony, I'm sure you can appreciate this, our, our love of you know what I could call right now chapter bands, you know, like Can would be one, Wilco, uh, even mm-hmm. Joni Mitchell, uh, just where every record you're on a, a whole different, it's like a different band. Um, and so really they're for every mood. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I vibe with that. And I, I think that's a pretty, you know, uh, usually I use terms like era, for mm-hmm. example, but I, I, you know, chapter is also a pretty cool term to Let's kind of go apply with era. to the, 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 apply to the way certain art. No, I, I like the way you did it. This is your show. I'm on your, I'm on this your show. This is our show, my friend. Um, no, I, I, I do, I do like the idea of kind of looking at the various ways a band or an artist can kind of evolve across their career as different chapters, you know, be it, VU or Led Zeppelin or Madonna or whoever. Right. Well, a band like this, they didn't, and uh, because of the different times, you know, it wasn't like nowadays you make a record, you go tour it for two years, then maybe you come back and make another record. By nature, you're kind of developing a lot slower. Yeah. Th- these guys were making records pretty much constantly. They weren't broken up by like two, three year long tours and all that. So the evolution happened really fast. Yeah, their their uh, their chronology is just crazy. So that was true know, of most artists at the time. But they really, yeah. because of their creative, restless spirit, they really did some pretty rap, you know, radical changes pretty quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, in the interest of keeping a close eye on what they do here and get a real sense of the arc, everything's split up by recording date here. So, um, and also I have the release dates as well. I think uh, we can all agree there's so much to talk about. So let's launch into the first segment, a little uh, partition of the show I like to call the run-up that gets us up to the first time they ever laid anything down to tape. Gentlemen, feel free to knock me off the talking perch uh, if you know if you want to talk about any of this stuff. But if there's no interruptions, uh, I have some really interesting Velvet Underground biographical information that's going to get us straight through to their first release, the Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, so I am very, very excited to hear all of Anthony Fantano's opinions on, on the entirety of the Velvet Underground discography. We have no time to waste. Let's get going. So the foundations for what would become the Velvet Underground were laid in late 64. Some dude named Lou Reed uh, had uh, been in a bunch of garage bands, uh, worked for Pickwick Records. Uh, We all love the song The Ostrich. Um, He describes his tenure there as being a poor man's Carol King. Um, He first meets John Cale, uh, a Welshman who'd moved to the U.S. uh, to uh, delve into classical music. 
Um, he had a Leonard Bernstein scholarship, had worked with experimental composers like John Cage it's, and Lamonte Young. Yeah, so he, I'll, butt, I'll butt in a Please little bit do. here. He, he kind of he was came in through all that like dream syndicate, like downtown New York kind of scene. This is kind of the uh, where this kind of all kind of is like the birthplace of it with in the mid 60s so you like yoko ono was hanging around lamont young uh, philip glass steve reich terry riley these are all kind of like the kind of composers who are hanging and the, out and these this. are not songs these are extended drones yeah yeah that well some of them they, they, right yeah you know, but it was the common theme with all the downtown new york scene was that it's kind of like a deconstruction of what music is like it's a lot of right. asking like what is music really so, so he comes from that sort of avant-garde background and it was kind of in with all of these guys which is an incredible mesh with Reed, because Reed is a very, you know, very inspired, but a very by-the-numbers uh, songwriter. Um, yeah, Kale specifically was Lamont Young was really like his, uh, his mentor. Right, right. And so uh, the first group they, the two of them had together was the Primitives, um, short-lived, uh, and assembled really to come, just pump out budget-priced recordings and uh, to create the Ostrich, to which Kale added a, a cherished viola passage. So they recruited Sterling Morrison, a college classmate of Reed's uh, at Syracuse University, as a replacement for Walter DiMaria, uh, who'd been a third member of the Primitives. So at this iteration of the band, Reed and Morrison both played guitars. Kale played viola, keyboards, and bass. And a guy named Angus McLeese uh, joined on percussion. Uh, they were first called the Warlocks, then the Falling Spikes. Uh, it, very much a sort of beatnik... Uh, f uh, finger finger snapping uh, version of what the VU finally became. Phase one: the imploding plastic inevitable, 1965 to 1968. So, in July of 1965, these suckers put the first thing ever down on tape. Um, you can find it all on the incredible box set. Peel slowly and see which features the color form on the front of being peel of peelable quality yeah so still um, have mine all these years later yeah me too it's definitely one of the best box sets that there is um this is uh lou reed john kale sterling morrison um in at their ludlow street loft recording a demo tape without angus mcleese uh, rating this feels like a dick move, so let's just rate it nascent and seminal, yeah, shall uh, we? Eph ephemera. Uh. So in the fall of 1965, Kale's friend and Dream Syndicate associate Tony Conrad introduces a book to the, to the band called The Velvet Underground by Michael Lay about the secret sexual subculture of the early 1960s. So uh, Angus McLeese, he of uh, soon-to-be-departed... Uh, <laughs> thought that it'd make a great band name <clears throat> so he pitched that in at least uh the band unanimously decides on the name in november of 1965 so the next month uh al aronowitz who is a uh, manager and music journalist arranges for the group's first paying gig to play at summit high school in summit new jersey which is about 30 minutes from where i grew up opening for the middle class a y instead of an i in middle for <laughs> 75 bucks this is December 11th, 1965, first gig. <clears throat> when they decided to take it, McLeese, he of the uh, super strict morals, uh, <laughs> abruptly leaves the group, uh, protesting what he considered a sellout. So he was replaced by Mo Tucker. So the playing style here, very unusual, very caveman-like. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I... 
I couldn't get over hearing listening to Mo play a lot. Um, I kind of I, I always really liked her playing, but I feel like I have a newfound appreciation for it. I didn't really. I guess I realized this at some level, but she uses only two limbs to play the drums. She's really just her hands, no feet. So it's whatever you can do with your two hands. I mean, I may be mistaken, that's, but it sounds like nuts. to me like she's executing everything with just her hands. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting way to play, and um, I, she was a real asset for the band, I think. I, the way, they makes them way more interesting, having her, than having just a conventional backbeat sort of standard drummer. <coughs> she also preferred standing up rather than being seated, right. uh, and often used mallets. So in 65, she comes into the group. Uh, after being introduced to uh, to the Velvet Underground by underground filmmaker Barbara Rubin, Andy Warhol becomes the band's manager, and uh, he very innocuously suggests uh, Nico, who uh, was born Krista Pafkin. And this whole merging of like the art world and and rock and roll at this time was something kind of new. There's really yeah. this, this sort of art school, art rock kind of, uh, and I mean art rock in terms of like but hanging the, out with like visual artists. Were this kind of, is you know. generally this is mainly how they're able to um, do what do whatever they want is because they right. have Warhol, right? And you know they do figure that you know we'll at least make our money back here. So that leads us into. You know, this thing that actually is very port important in the evolution of live music in general. Uh, it's not really talked about uh, in any kind of mainstream way, but in, it truly, I believe, uh, what became uh, known as the rave uh, started with something called the exploding plastic inevitable. So yeah. I thought at one time that going to the, like, if I could be in a time machine and go anywhere, I'd be like, yes. oh, that'd be cool to go to. Like, that's the, but. I would probably not have a great time there. You know <laughs> probably what? Like, it's the ultimate too cool for school thing of like ever. It's like the ultimate. You hit it on the head in a way I've never even heard written about. It's so true. I would love to have been there. See the Velvet Underground seminal early performances. See all these factory superstars. Gerard Malanga doing the snake dance. All the liquid light show projections. All the um, you know Warhol movies being projected on them. Totally groundbreaking <laughs> stuff. But just like you, I think I'd find myself in the corner watching these vampiristic, narcissistic people and yeah. wonder what time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. Yeah. I, that, that, I don't think there was any age where I would have felt cool enough to, yeah. <laughs> to be with I you. think you may be right on this one, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so after the November 4th, 1966 show at Valleydale Ballroom in Columbus, uh, you know, the next thing that occurs in their timeline, March 67. The Velvet Underground and Nico comes out. Anthony, you've heard of this record. You know, as, as, as far as like, I, I guess what you could call uh, modern art rock, it's like pretty much the rubric uh, yeah. in my opinion. Um, and there's just so much on the record to this day that like I hear employed uh, not just on weird little underground band camp projects that I run across every once in a while, but, you know, even, even more mainstream stuff, too. Um, you know, especially considering like how popular it is to, you know, just sort of verb things out to the point where they're just like dreamy as hell, uh, you know, be it, um, uh, with, uh, you know, artists like Tame Impala or, I mean, there's dozens that you could list that, uh, you know, have everything from, uh, cult followings to, you know, platinum selling records. Um, so, you know, just like everything about this record from its lyrics to its textures and tones, uh, to some of the weird instrumental palettes uh, on it, you know, to me, just kind of like, 
just looks like a just, just a gigantic splash in the water, which like at the time that it came out, it, you know, culturally it wasn't. It sort of took time to build up that momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the momentum is there and the reverberations of that are still being felt to this day, whether people are you know actually conscious of where some of these ideas and sounds are coming from or not. Yeah. yeah, it is kind of like the uh, you can hear so much of, you know, like pavement and R.E.M. and, you know, that sort of like uh, the absence of blues in the guitar playing and the the, mm. the emphasis on the sort of drones and the sort of the, the, the clean kind of arpeggiated guitar. It's, it is kind of like a indie rock before indie rock existed. You know, and, and, and I have to say, I, I, I have no idea how many times I've heard this album. It's possible over a thousand. I really come back to it all the time. And every time it blows me away. And that's, that's, you can't say that about very many records. And it actually did better than history allows. Uh, you know, the, uh, the common knowledge is that nobody bought it. And eventually, uh, you know, everyone started a band around it. But by, uh, by 1969, it had actually sold close to 60,000 copies. That's still not oh, okay. That. It's, it's not it, that much. It's not great, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Andy Warhol's role in this. So he's listed as executive producer, and his really his great contribution to it was that he didn't let anybody get in there and and mess it up. Right. He, he didn't let anybody try to like the suits come in, and he paid for it. He paid for the recording. Session. Yeah. So he's you know Tom Wilson is actually kind of turning the knobs and producing the record, and he's a really interesting producer in his own right. He was you know he did like a Rolling Stone and um, the Sound of Silence. He did like the Mother's Freak out and did the first soft machine record so interesting guy that worked with a lot of um, these kind of like high art sort of projects and um, they just let him kind of be themselves you know they didn't really try to like to be like oh, let's get a more conventional drummer or you know they didn't really try to clean it up they just sort of let them do their thing um, and I think that, you know Warhol be having the final say of anything he was able to prevent that from happening he was able to you know just kind of let them do their thing even though he wasn't really producing it I think he did have an, an important role I mean, they kind of knew just by having that album cover that they were destined to sell X amount of copies. So that I think they, they knew their investment was at least protected if, the, if they weren't going to you know, actually make a bucket load of money on it. You want to just, let's go track by track. I mean, I th- this really uh, warrants turning the microscope down on, uh, on the record. If you have not heard this, uh, this album, I, I have no idea how you stumbled onto this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a miracle. The algorithm uh, is prescient then. But, um, but of course, in all likelihood, you have. So Sunday Morning, right, uh, right from the go, is the only song that was, uh, was recorded in 67. Everything else was recorded back in 66. Uh, and there's a gentleness uh, of, uh, of sound on this song, a very billowing, uh, super floaty uh, vibe to it that belies the idea that this is actually the anthem for drug paranoia. Uh, not just that, but I mean, like, probably in the top 10 of, like, opening melodies for any album of all time. Mm-hmm, totally. Mm-hmm. Like, like that that melody as gentle and as... And, and I believe it's like, what is it, like a glockenspiel thing? It's a Celeste, um, yeah, somewhere. Yeah, there yeah. you go, it's a Celeste. So, you know, it, either way, like, it's it's just so sweet and gentle and... Uh, but al- but also hits very sharply because there's it, it, it even even though it's not a super aggressive sound, it does float on top of everything happening underneath it throughout the entire song, like just beautifully. Yeah, and I, it, this is one of these where it is kind of a song about paranoia, but there's also this this sort of uh, 
there's, there's kind of an empathetic thing to, to the Velvet Underground to me that I think kind of gets overlooked. I think they kind of like, to me, I always felt like they really, that Lou as a songwriter really identifies with the characters in the songs. That, that's, yeah. that it's kind of not a put down. Oh, yeah. That they're kind of a band that champions the sort of forgotten and the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the look down upon. <laughs> they're a band that you know, really. It's, it's, you know what's interesting is to, is to uh, compare them to Paul McCartney's writing style because right. if, if you compare uh, Lovely Rita to Caroline Says right. uh, the ability to get into somebody versus just watching them is it, it's yeah that's a songwriting technique day. that Lou uses a lot but, and, um, it, but I think th- I think they're kind of misunderstood in that way a lot I think that they're kind of looked at as this kind of nihilistic sort of bands but I think they have a very human empathetic quality you know that, that's, what, that, what's, what's, that's what Sunday Morning feels like to me um, yeah yeah, this could be on the third album. This yeah. could start the third right. album. So, waiting for the man next. Yeah, this is a good example of uh, Mo Tucker um, only playing drums with two limbs. <laughs> <laughs> she only uses two limbs ever to play the drums. So, that in itself is just like a deconstruction of what drums are. You know, if you if you say, okay, I can only use two limbs, you're pretty much like you know really deconstructing the idea of playing drums to something simpler than what it is really yeah. you know, for most people. So this is just, she's just hitting that one note over and over again. Da, 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 that's it. That's the whole part. And it's perfect because if you had, if you had, think about that song, if it had a traditional like rock backbeat, it would, wouldn't have that chugga chugga kind of thing to it. That makes it so magic. Great quote from Lou Reed. Uh, everything about that song holds true except the price. $26, not an accurate reflection, apparently, of, uh, of what heroin was costing at the time. So, amazing song. We can all agree with that. Fem- oh, by the way, one quick thing about Sunday Morning. Didn't know if you guys knew this. Uh, you probably did. But um, originally, uh, that was Nico singing that live. Mm-hmm. And Lou sang it on the record. Right. Yes, I could see how that could be a Nico song. Okay, so Femme Fatale. Now, yeah, speaking uh, of Nico, is, this is uh, one of the th- one of this is what there's three Nico songs in this record. I think seems like yeah, it's just yes. the right just the right amount of Nico. Yeah, it is. That's yeah, a handful. It is. Um, it is. At, so this is Andy Warhol's request, actually, for Lou to write a song about Edie Sedgwick. That's what Femme Fatale is. So, um, and then when Lou Reed said, uh, "What what should I write?" and uh, Andy Warhol said, oh, don't you think she's a femme fatale, Lou? So there you have it. <laughs> Andy, Andy somehow kind of gets his mitts in everything in a very, you know, very subtle way. So what's interesting to me about Lou Reed, here's the $64,000 question. How could Lou write such incredibly affecting material that was completely impersonal and doled out as really just an elevated writing assignment and yet was handled so compassionately? He's a pro song. He's a pro's pro as a songwriter. Femme yeah, yeah really right. Good. I mean, he, he he had plenty of time, sort of like not just songwriting, but also but also songwriting in the industry. So it's like he's kind of already used to the idea of like creatively operating in a space where there's almost like you know a deadline or certain right. expectations for the yeah. song to sound a certain way or encapsulate a certain vibe. So right, he's writing for for hire. He's writing for hire from his soul for himself. It's an incredible combination. Yeah, of, he's just a talented songwriter, and yeah, he yeah. has like this is a good example. He knows also, I think, from his experience working in, in a sort of brill buildingish kind of environment, mm-hmm. he knows he knows some tricks. You know, like like femme fatale. It's sort of a one four chord change, very simple. But he plays the chords instead of just major chord triads, he plays them as major sevenths. Mm-hmm. So they have a little bit of this kind of wistful melancholy to them. It would be a really different kind of song 
if it didn't have those major seven chords in it, it gives that that sort of dreamy kind of tension. Um, you know, that's 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 kind of a pro songwriter trick. You know, he, he doesn't do that often, but he knows that it worked on that. You know, yeah. <laughs> mo- I mean, most songwriters or bands that are looking for any kind of a dichotomy, like you know, look how uh, look how incredibly talented and broad our talent is. To put "I'm Waiting for the Man" next to "Femme Fatale" would be like a party trick. But the thing is, they're both incredibly profoundly uh, successful at what they do, albeit being completely different. And also, like, let's appreciate this is one of many moments on the record where, and I, I think this, like, you know, kind of ripples out today in all the ways in which, like, genres and cultures such as indie rock, for example, kind of you know, cherish or champion, at least to a degree, like amateurishness, uh-huh. um, right. you know, look, look, look at like kind of the green around the ears charm of something in the track, like, you know, the background vocals, just like <laughs> right. kind of apathetically going, like nobody in that group vocal is like selling it, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like so. that cold diffidence is part of the sell though. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Well, ex- exactly. It ended up being a part of the, the, of the appeal. Right. right. And then, you know, interesting, Venus and Furs. So they were doing all this S and M type stuff before the the name of the band actually even came down the pike, you know. So they they already had wayward tastes. Um, so now we're into S and M bondage, uh, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, we have very strong presence of cacophonous electro electric viola. And Sterling Morrison on bass, one of many times during the record where he plays bass, does it very, very exceptionally well, but he hated playing bass. Yeah, it's got a great mm-hmm. bass line in the song, actually, for listening yeah. to this and first. And, and, you know, to, to your point of, in terms of like what you were just saying about like loose songwriting ability with Femme Fatale, you know, I feel like personally I can kind of tell on this record when he's writing a song and obviously he's doing a good job of writing a song, but I, I feel like I can tell the difference between that and when he's really into the topic that he's singing about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think on Venus and Furs, he is very into, I mean, it's like, I, I feel like you kind of hear it in the feverish way with the, that he sings with the opening lines, like shiny, shiny. It's yeah, like, wow, yeah. it's dude, creepy. you're, you're, you're a like, creep. you know, you're a young creep. <laughs> <laughs> you're a young you're, you're, you're really, creep. you're really loving this. You're loving yeah, this, you yeah. sicko. <laughs> and I have a chubber, so I'm implicit. <laughs> There's also the tension with, uh, with, with Reed and Kale, because Venus and first to me always seem like a Kale song. So right, the, sure. when Kale leaves the band, they almost all becomes kind of singer songwritery songs. But yep. it, it, I think, I feel like it's on the kale songs where he not just to sort you make of, a really good point but it's not just the singer songwriter thing the material becomes so simple right. that lost fourth album the, those songs are moon june spoon right right a thousand percent so venus and furs also has the influence of that downtown new york thing is it's kind of built on that drone and yeah. they really understood the kind of psychedelic nature of a drone like that. Like this is an incredibly psychedelic song. Like it, it just makes you feel so stoned just just the minute it comes on. Um, no, the, for sure. The slightly out of tuneness of the the viola and all that. So, um, you know, this, this is brown acid. Yeah. To be clear, <laughs> this is not the sunshine or the. And this is just pain. the sound they made. There is not really a lot of studio trickery happening here. This is just them right. playing the song the way they play it. So, you know, very mm-hmm. impressive, amazing. So, track. so the next tune is was uh, is 
always been my least favorite on the record. That uh, that to be to be said, it's uh, I believe it's the least consequential tune on the record. Doesn't mean it's not awesome. Just by yeah. comparison, um, "Run Run Run" was written on the back of an envelope by Lou uh, while they were on the way to a gig at the Cafe Bazaar, and you got a ton of great characters in this. Uh, Teenage Mary, Margarita Passion, C6 Sarah, Beardless Harry, uh, and they're all either using or looking for drugs. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, but, you know, it's a great garage rock song, uh, but just, you know, sort of on a different level of urgency. To yeah. Me. They, well, the, the guitars are tuned down a whole step, so they're playing in D, so they have this really kind of slack sort of guitar feel. And I love Moe's uh, playing on this, because, again, she's just using the two hands. So she's doing that, but with just, yeah, yeah. just her hands. So she can really lock into a groove pretty good with just the two hands. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like this is a pretty like this chugs along real nice. You know, yeah. this this is more kind of like the like a like a groove kind of song. This sounds like them playing at the factory or something. More so. Yeah, I mean, I I, yeah. I I agree with you know the assessment that maybe this track in the grander scheme of things doesn't seem as consequential as a cut with like such a stunning melody as Sunday Morning or a track that like for its time had such a profoundly different and unique sound to it, like Venus and furs, but like in comparison with all the other tracks here, this one rocks, you know, like it's just got a great, momentum to it and it's great you know? in the, it's great in the sequence because it breaks up venus and furs and altamar's party so there's two these two right because then you just have like two droney tracks right. on top of yeah. each other um altamar's party's next i mean yes incredible yes. what a song um you know uh, first of all it's kind of a uh, whole cottage industry in itself you got a music festival named after it a william gibson sci-fi novel uh this was also recorded during april 66 at scepter studios um Great uh, piano motif by Kale, uh, an incredible vocal by Nico. I don't know what you guys think. This is my favorite Nico moment. I had the same thing in my notes, her best vocal, I think. Really yeah. st- stentorian kind of vocal on it. Yeah. Uh, what's your thoughts on the, on the vocal, Anthony? Uh, the, 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 it's not so much about like the vocal for me as much as it is how the vocal kind of locks in with everything else that's droning in the background behind it. Mm-hmm. Like it, It's really like the culmination of like, e- even more so than Venus and Furs. Like Venus and Furs to me is a very intense, like it's, it's drony, but I, I don't really feel like necessarily stoned with it because of how intense mm-hmm. the violins and how almost like shrill they are in a yeah. way. Whereas like, you know, all tomorrow, all tomorrow's party is like pure, just like reverberation. Um, just like everything vibrating on exactly the same wavelength. And it's all like kind of culminating in this yeah. really just, um, you know, kind of just surreal sort of experience. It sounds like it's a song coming to you from another dimension or the future or something like that. Yeah. Um, Especially during the guitar solo. There's just something about that section. Well, this is, again, the, the downtown New York thing. That's opening piano motif is very Terry Riley. Like yeah, that's yeah, very right. much like that kind of like arpeggiated yeah, yeah. Terry Riley kind of thing. And then, you know, um, the, but the grafted, this you know, the song's seven minutes or something. And by seven the way, plus ooh, by the way, um, uh, this is one of the first pop songs to make use of prepared piano. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the downtown art guys are like, you know, right. they're, they're, you know, they definitely it was, made it. It was impact. paper clips on the piano right. strings. So, but it's, you know, the song's seven minutes long, but it doesn't really feel like it. Not at it, all. It really, it's really a, a comfortable seven minutes. So, yeah, it's it unquestioned. It could be my favorite song on the whole record, but it's, yeah. it's certainly in the top three. Uh, the next song, it, you know, probably had the most profound effect on me, uh, not in terms of becoming a junkie, thank God, but the intensity of this song and the simplicity uh, just, I mean, like a two-year-old could have written this one, <clears throat> uh, not lyrically, of course, but um, it really is an astounding piece of work. And also, a lot of people don't know, it was written in 64. 
Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. He had this early, like when he met Kale, he had this song already. Yeah, yeah. So um, he was actually, uh, Reed was talking with WLIR in 1972. He said that um, he wrote the lyrics while working for a record company. By the way, I don't think we've mentioned it's the song Heroin we're talking about. Right, right, right. So um, the, the, yeah, the effect of the, uh, the, the, the bass drum is a beating heart. I mean, totally brilliant. The, 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 it, you know, it sounds like you're having kind of a heart attack. <laughs> I think it's really yeah. rushy. The I lyrics, mean, uh, absolutely astounding. Kind of feels like you're dying, kind of part, sometime parts of the song, you know, like ecstatically yeah. kind of dying. Um, yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, it's, and just, and just the momentum shift of it all as well, because right. like it, it, you know, the intensity wouldn't be anything if the song was obviously like you know just like this slow drone the entire time, yeah. or just like you know breakneck speed from front to back either. Like it's you know this really kind of gentle intro and then you have like the eventual rush in the ascent and then uh you know it, it it sort of takes a lot for everybody on the track to be kind of as locked in yeah as they were but simultaneously like you know uh, effectively a little messy and a little loose so that it sounds like chaotic as you would expect you yeah. know this kind of experience to sound and then for it all to kind of come back around again you know yeah um as as organically as as it unfolds yeah, you know, it sh- just goes to show you what kind of, in, in an unconventional way, what excellent musicians they really are. You know, to, yeah. to create something, they're kind of you know looked at as kind of primitive, but and, sh- is- and there's actually a clam in here. There's a famous clam. Yeah, there's there's all clams all over yeah, the yeah, record. It's not yeah, really. It's like an, it's like a, an ocean. <laughs> their their greatness as musicians is kind of comes from something different. You know, it comes comes from their ability to like listen and like play the right thing and you know not play the wrong thing. And it's more about right. playing and, and the play, right and note. Just play together. Right. Yeah. 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 And this yeah. and this yeah. you have to be able to do that to play this song well. You know, it's this song's magic. It's incredible. It, it is magic. Um, you know, this uh, I actually had an incredible experience to this song. So. <clears throat> in 1988, so I was 16, I went to uh, Wellesley College as a summer program for high school uh, high school kids to sort of set up a, a fake college. And there was, uh, you know, the punk kids who h- hung out by the loading docks, and they were like real hardcore-looking mohawks and, and everything, but they did not know the Velvet Underground. And we had a lip-sync uh, thing. And myself and my friend Jeremy Countryman did heroin, <laughs> and they were they were making fun of me, and they lit their. Of course, lighters they were making the fun of you. <laughs> no, in the beginning, they lit their lighters because it starts slow. They right. thought I they thought I had chosen some Harry. Oh, by the song. end, you won them over. <laughs> I, no, by the end, I was tying off on stage. And they were, I looked at them and their mouths were just hanging. You're the game. best 13 year old ever. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I was 16. Oh, okay, still, yeah. but still pretty impressive. It was a very memorable <laughs> evening. <clears throat> um, Anthony, did this have a, a powerful effect on you when you eventually discovered this? Um, you know, at the time that I got into it, uh, I think I had already been listening to like a bunch of different post rock bands you know, from like the 2000s. And mm-hmm. there was something about, uh, you know, just kind of like that that very gentle and kind of intense crescendo, if you could call it that, because it's very stripped back. You know, it's obviously not a huge instrumental rush or anything. Right. But there's something about, you know, kind of that progression to it that snapped to me in, um, you know, that time. And just also to, you know, hear Lou singing so 
boldly and so upfront about something that, you know, knowing what I did about the music of the time when they recorded this, I was like, how did this get out on record? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, this is not the kind of thing you hear on a Beach Boys LP, even, even though, you know, they themselves and their group were, uh, you know, in their surrounding group. Oh, they dabbled. They more than dabbled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. Um, the, we'll have you on for the Beach Boys one too. We'll need, we'll need an hour 45 for that one. All right. So the next one is, uh, there she goes again. Which, yeah. uh, to be fair, is just this the uh, guitar riff, uh, the sort of staccato thing that that it does is just taken wholesale from Marvin Gaye's song "Hitchhike." Yeah, it's you call it. It's a quote. I would say it's a quote. Yes, and I'm the, not saying that's it. That's the, that's the nice it. way to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a ter- terrific song. Uh, it's one of the least celebrated songs on the record. Um, and I think it's one of the best. I think it's a great song. I mean, Lou just kind of can write it. He can write pop songs like this so easily. You know, this, this yeah. one seems like one that just kind of can probably came off the top of his head. Um, yeah, I, one of the slider slides, I'd say this has kind of a more of a fun factor than run, 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 yeah. but it's kind of in the, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the slider kind of songs. Yeah. And then, um, the, you know, the next song is I'll Be Your Mirror, which is, um, you know, Kind of like it's a little bit in this in the Sunday morning kind of space, um, but a really beautiful Nico ballad. Also one of her excellent vocals, um, one of one of my favorites. Um, this, Actually, this, written th- written for her. Yeah, this that, I'll be your mirror is written by a guy that knows how to write songs. I mean, that, that's <laughs> yeah. a that's a professional songwriter kind of song. It was actually done, uh, the vocal takes were done over and over and over. They finally made her break down crying, and that's the take that we get here. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say like, you know, just like with the previous track we talked about and many others on here, there's like always kind of a dark underbelly quality to it. Um, you know, again, almost no matter what you're talking about, but like I'll Be Your Mirror is like one of the few moments on the record where it seems like there's, there's actually a genuinely lovely sentiment being mm-hmm. kind of conveyed here and and i think that is one of one of the many things that makes this track stand out i'll tell you one thing that would have uh taken from the experience of listening to this track <clears throat> quote-unquote producer andy warhol suggested thank god this was not taken up uh that there was a built-in scratch that would happen <laughs> so the line i'll be your mirror would just repeat in- infinitely unless you stood up and walked over to it <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, pa- uh, pads not taken. So the Black Angels death song. Yeah, the last. So the last two songs on this record are kind of like a little, kind of a little rabbit hole. Um, that, and to, I always kind of portends to what's coming around. Yeah, the I always think of them together. These two, these two mm-hmm. always always pair to me. Um, but go ahead. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> this is uh, a, you know, in the just in the interest of pure cacophony, just to come up with something that just feels. Like it's seething evil. In late 65, Al Aronowitz uh, arranged for the Velvets to play at Cafe Bazaar um, for just a little bit in December 65. So while they were there, they played an absolutely crazy version of this song. And the manager ordered them to never play the song again, again, uh, to which they responded by playing it uh, much, much harder than they had. Uh, they They were then sacked. The hissing sound <clears throat> that uh, is a sort of hysterically brief sub out for a chorus is actually just Kale hissing into the mic. He does it. They did this song um, in the 1993 reunion show, and he. It's a really interesting to hear him play that viola lick. It has a very distinctive way he bends the notes, kind of. It's it's a really like crazy technique he's using to uh, to get that 
drunken kind of viola sound, but then he also does the hiss sound yeah. in the live show, which I appreciated here. This is neither a good or a bad song. It's just like... I, this one to me is essential. This yeah, one, it's, this one's, no, it's great. This one's great, a big part it, of the vibe of this record. It's such a just mood thing. Yeah, the it, record, it gets really dark at the end, and I think mm-hmm. that that's the appropriate way to end after... You know, there's, there's, there's a few things in here that are kind of, kind of sweet, but the way that it resolves on the last two... Um, kind of like kind of steer it where it kind of resolves in a kind of a dark way and then kind of hints at what they would do next yeah yeah. and and it also just like kind of ends up giving you like a full helping of what many of the songs in so many ways are just kind of like flirting with up until that point yeah right you know because it's just like this is you know we're we're at the end here there we're not going to we've been sort of like teasing you with this and we've been giving you like tastes of like how weird and dark certain things that we're talking about or presenting to you can be like and now here it is just unadulterated Right, and the European Sun really, really lets it rip fully. That, that's, that's the older in, I get, the more I like that song. Yeah, they, they, that's when they're going into full scronk, like what, yeah. they, what they would do on a crazy night at the factory or something. This is basically like uh, it, it points to Sister Ray as far as what's uh, coming down right, the pike. Right. Yeah. Um, Anthony, what's your relationship to this song? Um, you know, I, I agree with your assessment there. I mean, you know, I'll say like Sister Ray, which we will very soon talk about is one of my favorite Velvet Underground songs of all time. Yeah. So, you know, and and I do tend to, you know, like a lot of uh, sort of winding experimental rock that's kind of loose. It doesn't necessarily have like a super clear direction when you're starting out. I mean, I'm also a pretty big Swans fan too. Um, So, you know, hearing them go in this direction is like, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse, even though I do love the very short and sweet and succinct, and succinct songs that are all up, you know, all happening up until this point. Right. Uh, to hear them like let loose, um, you know, in this way is is kind of refreshing. It's sort of like and that breaking glass, man. The 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 chair jag- dragging across the across the floor and the breaking glass. What how what a bold fucking way to announce yourself. I love or, all that. Yeah, it's great. Just terrific. All right. So rating this thing. I well, mean, well, a couple couple things first. Oh, hold on before we right. go there. So it's one of the greatest album covers of all time. Can we all agree on that? Yeah, amazing. And possibly Iconic. possibly sure. the greatest debut record of all time. Um, is it possible that this is the greatest debut album of all time? Well, if you're asking my opinion of it, um, I you know, I cannot possibly hold this record in higher esteem. It's it's in my top five records ever of all yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, uh, and I, I, I would say it's the greatest debut album of all time. If you if you were asked me, yeah. uh, even outside of the context of this episode, this would be my first answer. Everyone's got uh, their outlook as far as where punk began. You could easily make the case that it started here. You could make the case that it was Dave Davies slitting his amp before he recorded You Really Got Me. There's there's all kinds of... But this, you could easily make the case it started here. This is a very hard five. Uh, yeah, fi- obviously five stars for me. It's, it's all, all, you know, can't say much more about it. It's, you know, it's... Anthony, two and a half stars? <laughs> I, I wouldn't hesitate to give it five either. Okay. Just what do you, where sure. do you rank it in the pantheon of debut albums? Short list or a longer list? I would say on a shortish list, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I never really have thought about the record in respect to other debut right. albums. Honestly, I, I think about the album when, when I think about the album, I think about it more in terms of like other art rock albums. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, by that metric, I would say it's like easily in the top five. You know, right. I mean, it's it's really kind of like, again, it's the rubric. It's like, you know, it's a patient zero. It's the inception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's right. the Stanley rubric because it, it, it looms tall, just like the monolith in 2001. So right. uh, then Andy Warhol leaves the scene. Here's Reed on leaving Warhol. He sat down and had a talk with me. 
you got to decide what you want to do. Do you want to keep just playing museums from now on and, and the art festivals? Or do you want to start moving into other areas? Lou, don't you think you should think about it? So I thought about it, and I fired him. <laughs> so uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't work, though. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so Nico moved on after, um, after the Velvet severed their relationship with Warhol. I just want to talk quickly about Chelsea Girl. Chelsea Girl is her debut solo record that came out in October 67, featuring some tunes written by VU members. So really what you're looking at is um, you've got 10 songs on there and five songs are written by uh, any iteration of Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Nico. Um, and those songs are Little Sister, Winter Song, It Was a Pleasure Then, Chelsea Girls, and Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams. And that's a good record and my favorite Nico record uh, yeah. overall. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah, really it's, good it's, one. It's the, it's the Nico record. Though, right. um, you know, what, what is it? Uh, Marble actually, Index uh, is great. But yeah, Marble Index I'm also very impressed with. But I, I agree with both you guys. I think that, um, you know, there's other great stuff, but there's this really beautiful, windswept, autumnal feeling about this record that I always connected with. However, you did, uh, just before we say goodbye to Nico, uh, almost for, for good through this whole story, uh, she had The Marble Index, Desert Shore, The End, Drama of Exile, and Camera Obscura, and then Exunt Nico. In early winter of 1967, there are five pre-White Light, White Heat demos that you can find on uh, Peel Slowly and See. Uh, we have the following five songs. There is no reason, Sheltered Life, It's All Right the Way That You Live, uh, I'm Not Too Sorry Now That You're Gone, and Here She Comes Now. So let's go over these because uh, to me, this is very much canon. Well, uh, the, the first thing about it that I kind of notice is the tape has a lovely kind of like warble to it. It was done which adds a, to it. It just adds to the vibe. It does. Um, you know, that kind of tape warbling sort of thing is very in fashion these days. Uh, yeah. It's, um, but yeah, it sounds cool. This sounds pretty cool. Um, the star of the show for me is the early version of Here She Comes Now. That's um, so good. Which is, it's, it's, it's really uh, in psychedelic. Some ways it's better than the, than the released version. It's very, it's very crudely recorded. It's kind of out of tune, but yeah. there, there's something super hallucinogenic about yep. it. Really, really psychedelic. It's, it's amazing. This, this actually, uh, I agree with you in the sense that I feel like uh, this selection of five songs builds as it goes. Yeah. There is no reason in Sheltered Life. Uh, they're okay. Sheltered Life has a fucking kazoo solo. Right. Not a VU high point. Yeah, they're kind of goofing around a little bit. Yeah. It's all right. The way that you live is a small piece of perfection, I think. Yeah. I always love that, that song. It seemed like that wasn't going to fit in with White Light, White Heat. It would have been an odd fit on that album. Yes. But um, it's cool, though. As there's a standalone, a nice, it's, it's a kind great. Of, there's a nice tune underneath there. Yeah, it's definitely going on the playlist. Um, I'm Not Too Sorry Now That You're Gone. Samesies, another forgotten great consigned to the demo dustbin. Of you, you can see the startings of like a different kind of record than what they made. Because if you take these three... And you think of like if that was the core of the record, what the record would have been like. There's a kind of a mellower record that they could have a path they could have yeah, taken. Yeah, I give it I give this little section of songs four stars. I give it the same four stars. Sweet man. In September nineteen sixty seven, the band records White Light, White Heat. It's eventually eventually released in January nineteen sixty eight. <clears throat> this is like an anvil dropped on your head. Did you have this, the same kind of experience with it when you first heard it, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of amazing how um, chaotic this record is. But like in the grander scheme of like the rock pantheon, 
I mean, yeah, you could say that they flirted with this on their debut, yes, but like on their debut, they doubled. It's down. almost it's 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 almost like the rubric for art rock, but with white light, white heat. There's so many moments that are just like the rubric for noise rock. Yeah, this goes um, it goes straight to post punk. Just skips over yeah, punk yeah. entirely. Sure, sure. My favorite thing about it, I think, is that it's kind of a concept album. I mean, this is recorded in September '67, so they're writing this material during the summer of love. This uh, was designed from the beginning to be a reaction against San Francisco's Summer of Love and also an attempt to capture their live sound. Yeah, well, they have Tom Wilson back in the producer's chair. Um, He's brought back for this record as well. And again, he just lets them do their thing. This record is so blown out and crazy sounding. It's it's so in the red. Letting them do their thing, I think, is like... That's putting it lightly. Yeah, no kidding. He let let them do their thing on the last record, but uh, he, he definitely... Uh, I, it, <laughs> yeah, and, and by the way, a key key thing to realize is that he would never work with them again. This was it. Yeah, I think right, he's, I right. think he's a great producer. Actually, yeah. I, I think he kind of doesn't really get his due um, for how many cool things he did and how many and, and like his open mindedness as a producer at that time. Um, I, I I just I love him. I, I and this this record has such a unique fingerprint to it. Yeah, you know the the it's it's so in the red and it's so just the sound of like tubes distorting and tape distorting and the console distorting like you know, and all those things feeding into each other um and it, but it, but it's a really kind of lovely kind of scuffed up kind of blown out sort of sound to my I love ears what, i love what sterling said about it we were all pulling in the same direction we may have been dragging each other off a cliff but we were all definitely going in the same direction uh mm. so the album was uh, released at the end of january 68 it peaked at, at 199 uh, on the Billboard Top LPs chart. Uh, this was their last studio recording with Kale, and it was uh, very heavily influenced by uh, Free Jazz and Ornette Coleman in particular. Uh, a, a good side thing to keep in mind is Rolling Stone refused to re- review the record when it was initially released. And of course, very predictably, it's now been listed uh, in the top 500 greatest albums of all time. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So this thing just builds and builds and builds. Well, this record to me is one that I mean I, I do love it dearly, but it has this is it has a major flaw. This record isn't that there's 13 minutes of it that I just don't really like. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, yeah. The gift and Lady Godiva's yeah, operation. Yeah. So those two yeah. are a little rough for me. But well, um, let, let's let's go let's go in order. Let's go in order. I, so, I I personally I'll say I find Lady Godiva's operation very funny. Like it's uh. And, and, and the thing is, like, there's not a whole lot that, you, you know, from this era that you could say, oh, yeah, this is like, like, they were completely on their own, their own wavelength on that track. And just like the panning and everything. Yeah, there's like, all that it's, crazy it's, stuff going on, too. It's it's yeah. insane. Like, yeah, I, really I, I just, I'll, I'll say, like, I know I'm skipping ahead here, but like, you know, do I do I enjoy it? And do I listen to it in the same way that I would like, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, like the first uh, Led, Zep- Led, Led Zep- no, no, like Led Zeppelin's oh, okay. Black Dog, no, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. But but the, but the thing is, like you know, when I when I listen to it, do I do I love to observe it as like a really weird art piece, like you know, like I would like uh, uh, some kind of you know, obviously like throwing a fucking urinal inside of a uh, right. yeah. <laughs> inside it's, it's inside of a you know inside of like an, an art museum or a gallery. Yes, you know that, that's that's almost kind of how I how I see the song and, and why and why I sort of dig it as much as I do. Yeah, you gotta give you gotta give him weirdo points. Yeah. Even though that track is like maybe the the 
most shiny example of it. I, I feel like a lot of the songs on here are on that same wavelength to one degree or another, which is why, you know, this record feels in some ways even more cohesive to me than the debut does. Yeah. Oh, it de- no, it's definitely more cohesive because it focuses yeah. on only one strain of their music instead of trying to do a Whitman sampler. Uh, sure, but, sure. But, you know, uh, you know any, any album that starts off with uh, th- with the meth version of "Got to Get You Into My Life," <laughs> you know you're on a wild fucking ride. And the pictures right. of them from that time, you know that severe short buzzed cut that Lou had, and all those choke collars. They, they look like you just wanted to give them a wide berth. <clears throat> that first song is so incredible. Uh, you have that heavily distorted electric bass outro that that uh, Kale's playing over that single chord that supposedly was, you know, I've never shot meth, thank God, but purportedly mimics like the throbbing ear ringing effects that you get during the rush. Um, But uh, it feels like a nail gun to the skull. That song is just incredible. I love, and it feels rooted in the 50s. It feels Mm -hmm. rooted in- No, absolutely. Like the the swinging, you know, kind of rock groove to it. You know, to sort to sort of like compare it to Femme Fatale, you know, the background vocals on this one feel almost peppy right, by right. comparison. You know, the white night. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. it's very, it's very groovy, it's very sweet, it's very fun. But you know, you're right. There is something about the sound of it that feels like it's it's all happening like in a noise tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, it's got that great scuffed up kind of thing to it where it's, it's, it's everything's distorting, you know. Like it, and I'm not going to argue against the next couple of songs not being up to snuff. You want to take it from here, The Gift and yeah, Lady so, Godiva's you know, the, the, Operation. The Gift and Lady to me those are those are two things that they had. You know, The Gift is kind of like a short story that Lou wrote at Syracuse, um, my alma right. mater by the way. And um, you know, and then Lady Godiva thinks the same thing. They're kind of like these sort of story songs that, you know, um that are both very repetitive, I think is are they really the crimes of those songs to me? The, yeah, the right. story of the gift is really impossible to follow. Kind <laughs> of. Um, one cool thing about it is the music is panned to one side and the story right, is right. on the other side. So you can, uh, by panning, you can mix as much of each element in there as you want. What I do like about it like is that, that it reminds me of the, you know, endlessly incredible EC comics. Yeah. Um, but, you know, agreed. You don't, it, the replay value. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, but then the rest of the record. So it closes with side side one closes with uh, here she comes now. Which is that's a, amazing. Yeah, it's then a beautiful, yeah, beautiful droney kind of minimalist sort of thing. I love a Harry Chapin song about making a woman orgasm. Right. And then side two though is really where this record um, seals its reputation. Moving right along because side two, it's as stunning as Joe has alluded to. <clears throat> it's one of the greatest album sides of all time. I heard her call my name and Sister Ray. A five-minute song and a 17-minute song. I Heard Her Call My Name is a love song for a dead girl. Uh, Reed's guitar playing, inspired by Jimi Hendrix. Um, there's elements of garage rock, but now we're in an area that seems to be, uh, he seems to be the only one inhabiting it. Also, I am an avid uh, purveyor of the idea that the line that you utter before your guitar solo needs to be just as spot on as the guitar solo. And the line, and then my mind split open, is so fucking great. <laughs> yeah. And then the solo is great. The solo is kind of like it's an anti, it's one of the best anti guitar solo. It, definitely Ornette Coleman, 
free jazz, you know, inspired, where the, the what really matters is how much intensity you're putting. It almost reminds me of how, like, Greg Ginn would play or something. Anthony, do you hate this song? No, no. I, th- I think, like, Run, Run, well, even more st- so than Run, 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 this is, like, one of the most kick-ass songs of all time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah Just, again, the, the pacing, the momentum of it. I heard it call my name. Like, it's just got a great vibe to it all around. This gets overlooked because of Sister Ray, but in a lot of ways, this is crazier than Sister Ray. Sister Ray kind of settles... In a in a little bit of a more laid back group. Sister Ray's a slow burn kind it of, is. you know, and it, it gets to really crazy heights, but it, it kind of yes. bu- it kind of builds to where I heard her call my name. I, I, just... I, I would say it's a slow burn that eventually ends up turning into a world engulfing wildfire. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it finally finishes burning, it's really burning. Yes. So yeah. I guess we're at Sister Ray now. We're at Sister so. Ray. Um, Sister Ray. I, I gotta say, so this is this was an important uh, turning point in my life. The I was in high school. I was seventeen years old. It was right before senior year of high school, uh, the first time that I tried LSD, and it was an amazing experience. Uh, and that night we went to sleep. It was like five in the morning. We put on Sister Ray to go to bed. Oh and God! I, I feel like that was <laughs> that made me cool for the rest of my life. I go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Go, go, on, go on. Oh, I was I was going to say I, I thought it was funny that the gift was pointed at as maybe like difficult to kind of follow the story, but like sister, if if that's the case with the gift, like <laughs> sister Ray is a fucking shit show. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. true. It's true. Well, Lou says uh, here's his quote: "Sister Ray was done as a joke. No, not as a joke, but it has eight characters in it, and this guy gets killed, and nobody does anything." So right. it was built around this story that I wrote about this scene of total debauchery and decay. But no, so the coolest thing about this is they don't really do anything. They sit around. It's a, basically about an orgy that doesn't quite take it's off. It's kind of a shaggy dog story. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like that. I mean, there is some ding-dong sucking, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, for, for me, this track is like really about, as you were saying, like the depravity of the lyrics combined with just... Uh, Mo and the organ like it's, yep. it's really about like because the organ just seems to as the song is progressing along just burn hotter and hotter and hotter i'm just like why why is this the engineer yeah. left the session about five minutes in the engineer basically said uh, um, he you know pieced out of the session and left yeah. and so kale had the loudest amp he was playing organ so he just kept going mm-hmm. over and turning up the amp so by the end, it just it was just so loud that it was just bleeding into all the other mics, yeah. and he just drowns everybody out, which is kind of part of the magic of the track. You know, it's like you get yeah, you know, K- Kale's like Kale's attitude is just kind of built into the arrangement of you know. One of the yeah, cool. I didn't I didn't know I didn't know he was progressively turning it up. If yeah, he kept going up to his case, amp and turning yeah. it up. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Well, if that if that's the case, then yeah, that would totally explain like why by the time the song is ending, the organ is just like just burning everything else down. And it also explains why at the end of that song he was out of the group. <laughs> that, that was it. <laughs> this is this is Kale's uh, fin- finale with the group. Yeah. Uh, great, and, great way to go out. Uh, it's not a perfect album. Side One's got some peaks and a couple of valley-ish moments as well. Uh, I struggled with it a little bit when I was 14 back in 1986. I came at it too early, and I remember how it made me feel as if a, as if a stranger was trying to lure me into a candy-stuffed van. So uh, there's, but no, there's no candy in the van, man. No candy here. I give it a hard five. I really do. I gave this one four and a half. I overlook I overlook the faults. Yeah, I gave it four. Well, you know, considering that about a third of it I don't really like. Um, that's four and a half is still a pretty high compliment. Um, the rest of it is so good that I think it's like at minimum a four and a half star record for me. Um, so yeah, the, re- the even though I kind of always skip those, um, still still love it. 
Yeah, I'd probably I'd probably give it four and a half as well. I mean, I think um, it it is just like you know six tracks, but it is a bit of a choppy six tracks. Like you know, there's certainly like a chaotic element to all of it that does kind of make it all make sense as like an entire piece. Uh, but it is a little all over the place. Uh, as much as I do kind of enjoy each moment on it individually, and that's kind of where I sort of feel like I I enjoy it um, the most. It doesn't really like you know necessarily a uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a little jarring to kind of jump from track to track as much as I enjoy all the tracks, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like maybe with a different sequence, you know, maybe if we had white light, white heat and heard her call my name, like next to each other, um, that would make a bit more sense. Like I given smell a brand new their, box set with your name emblazoned <laughs> upon it, <laughs> given, given like their driving quality and everything. And then maybe, uh, you know, put the, put the spoken word tracks right up against sister Ray and just like totally fuck up the second half, you know? Right. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, but anyway, like even with the flow being as choppy as it is, I think the record is just as groundbreaking as the debut in so many ways. Um, it just doesn't feel like as, uh, you know, maybe a complete experience because it's not covering as many bases, uh, even yeah, if right. in some elements, in some respects, it does feel a bit more cohesive. Yeah, well, the back half of their catalog, I think, also remains pretty cohesive from record to record. Um, I think maybe because Lou is doing so much of the it's, it's it becomes so much more of a loop kind over. of thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that's really we'll, we're going to get to that next episode. There's so much more to talk about. I mean, there's you know, a couple more records. There's records, lost records, records between records, live records, live box sets. There's personnel a lot to changes. Talk about. Personnel Pers- changes. But before we uh, before we end this episode, I just want to just want to touch on this. You know, you may be uh, one of our super fans who's been tuning in for dozens of weeks already. <clears throat> you might be a brand new listener to the Velvet Underground Experience uh, during Needle Drop Month here, but I just wanted to ask, in case you are new, or even if you're one of our old standing friends, what is Discography? Yes, it's a podcast, you asshole, of course. But also, uh, the way that I see this, Discography is a community. It's a community composed of soldiers of sound. That's what we are. And we refute the notion that it's hard to make friends after college. Get rid of some old shitty friends who don't care about music anymore. They're just taking up all your time. Make some new friends, friends that care, not just about new releases and reissues, but about you. Step one, join our Facebook group. Get involved. Follow us on Twitter at Discography and on Instagram at Discography Pod. Please write this second, pause this stream and rate the podcast five stars along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you listen to us on Apple or Spotify. None of this uh, four and three quarter stars business. No, that's ridiculous. It'll help, not just Joe and I, but eventually, seriously, all of us. Step two, communicate with us. The most important thing in the world is our listenership. I'm going to return every note and letter as I consider myself first and foremost a denizen of the collective unconscious. In other words, I belong to you. Step three, keep in mind that the link to the playlist is in the show notes and also on our website, discography.com. It's an invaluable resource. Step four, using the link in the show notes or on Facebook, etc. Let us know who you think we should turn the spray cans on next, or even if you're qualified and want to inquire about being a guest on the show. And then finally, step five, start a whole new life and begin anew, discography style. Having done so myself, I can tell you flat out that it's the only way to live. We'll see you next time, next week, for the Velvet Underground Part 2 on Discography. Discography.